Hi, and welcome to the study of God's Word from the pulpit of First Baptist Church, Winton, California. It is good to be with you in worship this morning. I know that the uh, smoke clouds are moving in to give us another week of <clears throat> difficulty in breathing, but we will work through that. I want to speak to you this morning from a book that is uh, seldom referred to. Um, it's not really a book as much as it is a personal letter that the Apostle Paul wrote and wrote for a very specific purpose to a very specific individual with a very specific burden that was on his heart. On his third missionary journey, well, really on his second missionary journey, the Apostle Paul and his traveling companions had ministered for a very, very brief time in the city of Ephesus. And then they went on to minister into other areas. When Paul decided to go on his third and final missionary journey. He took his companions with him to visit some of the churches that they had already established. And they had come back to the city of Ephesus, where they would spend almost three years uh, in evangelizing the lost and discipling the saved in the Christian faith. Hundreds of people came to faith in Jesus Christ through the ministry of the Apostle Paul and his companions in the city of Ephesus. It was not an easy ministry. The Temple of Diana was there, a very popular cult uh, in the region, but God's grace prevailed and the gospel of Christ was heard and received by hundreds of people who came to faith in Jesus. One notable convert was a wealthy slave owner from the city of Colossae, nearby city of Colossae, and his name was Philemon. Philemon. After his conversion, he went back home to Colossae, and he joined the Christian fellowship, the Christian church there in the city, and became, eventually became one of the leaders of that church. As a matter of fact, um, this wealthy man had lands as well as servants, uh, had a large enough house that he could host the church in his own home. For at that time, you will remember that the Christian church did not have a building like we have, like hundreds and thousands of other churches have. They met in homes. Uh, they had home churches, uh, a more intimate uh, fellowship of people to study the Word of God, to pray together, to sing together, and to share uh, testimonies from their lives on the things God was doing in their lives. And so... Philemon became a very important person in the city 
of Colossae. Now, Philemon owned a slave by the name of Onesimus. Onesimus. Onesimus was not a Christian, but he had heard of Jesus Christ through his master. And quite, uh, quite probably had also heard of Jesus Christ through the Apostle Paul. Sometime around A.D. 60 or 61, Onesimus ran away from his master and from the estate, and he traveled to the city of Rome about 1,300 miles away. It was an arduous trip, took him a long time, many dangers he encountered along the way. But he had gone to the city of Rome, quite possibly, we don't know, but quite possibly to lose himself in this huge metropolis, this huge city where he could never be found. I'm told that at that time, the city of Rome, uh, the population of the city of Rome was about one-third slaves. So, it is believed that Onesimus would lose himself in the crowd, would not really be noticed by anyone, uh, and would uh, finally be satisfied in his heart and in his life that he had gotten away from slavery out on the estate of Philemon. Well, after a time, while he was in the city, and this is a huge city at this time, he happened to meet the Apostle Paul. Paul was in prison. So he was not free to walk among the crowds and preach and teach the gospel of Jesus Christ. He was located in a specific area. How they met, the Bible doesn't tell us. But I know in my heart they met because God orchestrated it. God brought Onesimus and Paul together for a specific purpose. And we'll get to that in just a moment. As Paul was always prone to do with people that he met, he shared the gospel of Jesus Christ with Onesimus. Onesimus became a Christian and decided that he would stay with the Apostle Paul and minister to the Apostle Paul while Paul was in prison. And over the course of time, they became good friends. But it wasn't long that Paul began to wrestle with his conscience. He wanted Onesimus to stay with him and maybe become a personal attendant to him and certainly become a traveling minister with him should Paul be released. And that was his plan, that he would be released and would be able then to resume his missionary efforts. And he wanted Onesimus to stay with him, to serve with him like Timothy and like Luke and like others. But on the other hand, the Apostle Paul knew that 
Onesimus was a runaway slave. And in Rome, a runaway slave was a criminal. And so Paul, in all good conscience, couldn't harbor a fugitive from the law as he would go about his ministry in Christ. And then there was the question of Christian ethics that the Apostle Paul wrestled with. It would only be right to send Onesimus back to his master in Colossae to face the consequences of his crime in running away. After thinking about it, certainly after praying about it, that's what he decided to do. And Onesimus agreed. Paul had another friend and fellow minister with him in Rome. And so he decided to send Onesimus with his friend Tuchikos to Colossae to deliver a letter that Paul had written to the church in Colossae. He also wanted Tuchikos to return Onesimus to his master, along with a personal letter that he had written to the master. Both of those letters are in your New Testament. Paul's letter to the Colossians and Paul's personal letter to Philemon. I want you to turn in your Bibles, if you will, please, to the book of Philemon. It's near the end of your New Testament, after the book of Titus, before the book of Hebrews and James. So it's close to the end of your New Testament. And from Paul's letter to Philemon, I want to draw three lessons that speak of the power of Jesus Christ in the life of a believer. Three lessons from this very brief letter that Pastor Chris read at the beginning of the service. Three lessons that speak to the power of Jesus Christ in the life of a believer. The book of Philemon. Are you there? Remember that Paul is in a Roman prison for preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I want you to note, he begins the letter by saying that he is a prisoner of Jesus Christ. He is a prisoner of Jesus Christ. The only time he calls himself that in any of the letters that he's written. He doesn't say that he is an apostle. He doesn't say that he is a servant of God or a bond servant of Jesus Christ like he does in the other letters that he's written. He doesn't say that he is a prisoner in Rome. He says that he is a prisoner of Jesus Christ. And I want you to think of that for just a moment. 
Why would Paul refer to himself as the prisoner of Jesus Christ rather than addressing this personal letter to Philemon as an apostle of Jesus Christ, as a bondservant of Jesus Christ, as a servant of the Lord God, or even as a prisoner of Rome? Why would he want to convey this thought to Philemon? Just think about that. The first lesson that I want to draw our attention to is this. Personal faith in Jesus Christ transforms one's attitudes. Personal faith in Jesus Christ transforms one's attitudes. Now as Americans, and we are Americans here, as Americans we pride ourselves in having personal freedoms, don't we? Nod your head yes because you know you do. We pride ourselves in having personal freedoms. We can go pretty much wherever we want to go. We can do and say pretty much whatever we want to do and say. And we can pretty much become whatever we want to become. When our freedoms are infringed upon, we don't like that one bit, do we? We don't like any government telling us what we can and cannot do, where we can and cannot go, what we can or cannot say. As a matter of fact, we don't like individuals telling us those things. We don't even let our wives tell us those things, do we, husbands? Should I ask the women to have a show of hands? We cherish our personal freedoms. And we've become so accustomed to having those freedoms and exercising those freedoms as we should. Because that is one of the, the, the main tenets of being an American is to have freedom. To enjoy freedom. But when those freedoms are infringed upon, we tend to squeal like a pig stuck under the fence. We don't like that. And we want people to know that we don't like their infringing upon our freedoms. But in this letter, the Apostle Paul reveals the attitude that every believer in Jesus Christ should have and should exercise. We may be pastors and teachers, we may be evangelists or missionaries, we may be servants and leaders, but first and foremost, we have been captivated by Jesus Christ and have willingly become a captive of Jesus Christ. The only freedom, the only freedom that a Christian really has is the freedom to obey the will of God. The only freedom that a Christian really has is the freedom to obey the will of God. And if you have a problem with that, I'll refer you back to Matthew chapter 7 and verse 21 where Jesus talks about those who stand before the Lord God on the day of judgment. And what is the one criteria that the Lord God will require of that individual who stands before him in judgment? 
I believe the Bible is God's Word. I believe that with all of my heart. I believe that with all of my mind. I have studied under individuals who did not believe the Bible was the Word of God. I have studied under professors who did not believe that the Bible was trustworthy, inerrant, verbally inspired by God. But I came out from under those individuals more convinced than ever that the Bible is the Word of God. I don't believe that the Bible contains God's truth. I do not believe that the Bible contains God's truth. I believe the Bible is God's truth. It is God's truth. Scripture tells me that when a person is truly saved, and I emphasize truly saved, when the Bible tells me that an individual is truly saved, he or she will no longer be the same person. That individual will no longer be the same person. Something miraculous happens when a person becomes a Christian. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 17, I refer to this passage quite a bit because it's very important for us to understand what the Apostle Paul is saying to the Corinthian church, a corrupt church, a church that was faltering, a church that was about to destroy itself. The Apostle Paul reminds the fellowship in Corinth, therefore, if anyone is in Christ Jesus, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. What is he saying? When an individual becomes a Christian, the old sin life dies and the new Christ life lives. And the only reason, dear friends, the only reason we have a problem with the old sin life is because we keep propping up that dead corpse in our lives. The only reason why the old sin life has any sway over us, has any effect on us, is because we keep resurrecting it from the dead. But if you're a Christian, understand that God has given you a new nature. It is a holy nature. That, de- that, that prompts you, that, that creates in you a desire to be like Christ. It's a very important thing that we understand that. When you become a Christian, you're not the same person anymore. The word creation that the Apostle Paul used, uses here, thesis, it means To be a new creature. It means to be reformed, not reformed, but reformed from the inside out. As I stated, God gives us a new nature, gives the Christian a new nature, a holy nature that desires to be like Jesus and to not be like the world anymore. If you're genuinely a Christian, 
walking in fellowship with the Lord Jesus Christ through his Holy Spirit, you're not going to have the hunger for the things of the world like you used to. Oh, there may be twinges here and there from time to time, but the desire of your life will be to to draw near to Jesus Christ and to fellowship with him through the Holy Spirit rather than to fellowship with the things of the world. He sends the Holy Spirit to live within us who forms again the image of God in our mind, in our heart, our affections, in our will. And beloved, that takes time and it takes work. It takes time and it takes work. I was speaking to an individual not a thousand years ago or a million miles away and was trying to express to that individual that being Christ-like does not happen overnight. The desire is there because the Holy Spirit puts it there. It is a process. It is something that we work on day in and day out, and it is work. In Philippians chapter 2 and verse 13, the Apostle Paul writes, Work out your salvation with fear, excuse me, Philippians 2.12, Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Hear that again. Work out your salvation. The Apostle Paul does not say work for your salvation, but work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is working in you to both to will and to do his good pleasure. It's a cooperative effort. It is a cooperative effort. God working in me, me working with God to become like his son, Jesus. doesn't happen overnight. You can't let go and let God. It is a cooperative effort with the Holy Spirit of God to achieve that goal. And that is the goal of salvation, by the way. If you go back to Romans chapter 8, the Apostle Paul tells us, those whom he foreknew, he predestined, what? To be conformed to the image of his Son. The goal, friend, the goal of salvation is not to get to heaven. That's a fringe benefit. The goal of salvation is to be like Jesus in this life. To glorify the Lord God in heaven by being conformed to his Son. Everything else is just gravy. Well, you may very well ask, what does this have to do with my attitude? Since that is lesson number one, what does this have to do with my attitude? And the answer is, it has everything to do with your attitude. It has everything to do with your attitude. Attitude determines action. Attitude determines action. When Jesus had that large crowd gathered together on that hillside that day, 
as he began the Sermon on the Mount, he began to talk about their attitudes. Before he ever talked about their sins, before he ever talked about hating another person, before he ever talked about lusting after another person, before he ever talked about giving your alms to the poor, before he ever talked about a multitude of things we engage in, insofar as our religion is concerned, he talked about our attitudes. Because Jesus knew we cannot affect our actions until, first of all, we change our attitudes. Attitudes determine actions. Stanley, you were a pilot, and you were well aware of the dynamics of the attitude of the plane with regard to altitudes. You keep the nose of the plane up, give it power, it rises. You put the nose down, whether you give it power or not, it's going to fall. Attitude is not everything, but it is a very important thing. Conscience gives birth to conduct. How and what you think governs what you are and how you live. Attitude is extremely important. Zig Ziglar, a Christian thinker of the last generation said your attitude not your aptitude but your attitude determines your altitude and you all have heard of Winston Churchill I'm sure Winston Churchill said attitude is a little thing that makes a big difference attitude is important and the first lesson that we have to learn from this book, this letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to Philemon, is to have a right attitude. And that when you are a Christian, when Jesus Christ impacts your life, one of the first things that takes place is a transformation of your attitude. Notice verse 8 and 9. Philemon, there's only one chapter So just verse 8 and verse 9. Notice what the Apostle Paul says. Though I have enough confidence in Christ to order you, to order you to do what is proper, yet for love's sake I rather appeal to you. Since I am such a person as Paul, the aged, and now also the prisoner of Christ Jesus. Paul had such moxie about him. Paul had such dynamic Uh, qualities about him. He was well known, well respected by the Christian community. He could have ordered Philemon to do certain things expecting Philemon to do what Paul ordered. But that was not his attitude. As a Christian leader to a Christian disciple, the Apostle Paul took upon himself a loving attitude to deal with the issues that had to be, deal, that had to be dealt with with Onesimus. Again, Paul could have demanded Philemon to receive back Onesimus, to forgive his debt, and to set him free from slavery. And he could have invoked the name of Jesus Christ just as an arm twister to get Philemon to do what Paul wanted. 
But Paul didn't. He didn't. He appealed to Philemon in Christian love to do what was right in Christ Jesus. And it's something that we all should be concerned about and that we should all be working on in our own lives. Check our attitude in dealing with others. Which brings me to lesson two. And lesson two is personal faith in Jesus Christ transforms the life. The attitude first and then the transforming of the life. Attitude always affects actions. Attitudes always affect actions. For all intents and purposes, Onesimus was just another slave like millions of other slaves in the Roman Empire. He served a menial purpose to his master. He was to do his job back on the estate and either earn his freedom through his work, which was highly unlikely, or to die a slave, which is more likely. But then Onesimus met Jesus through the ministry of the Apostle Paul. When a person really enters into a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, that life is transformed. When a person really meets Jesus as personal Lord and Savior, that life is transformed. Romans chapter 8, verse 29, For those whom he foreknew, we already quoted this before, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son, to become conformed. Not immediately, not overnight, it is a process. The process of transformation into the image of Christ in this life begins and continues on. For how long? For how long does the process take? How long do I have to continue to work out my salvation with fear and trembling? How long do I have to engage in this process to be Christ-like? For the rest of your life, until he takes us home to be with him. We will never be able to sit back in our easy chair with our feet propped up, sipping from our glass of iced tea, and say, as a Christian, I have arrived. <laughs> will never happen. It is a process that will continue on into glory. The name of this slave is a very intriguing name, and the Apostle Paul uses it very effectively in this letter. The name Onesimus means profitable. It means useful. He was profitable to his master Philemon, but the power of Jesus Christ made him profitable to the Apostle Paul and to Philemon, but more importantly, made him profitable to the kingdom of God. Look at verses 10 and 11. I appeal to you, the Apostle Paul writes, I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, 
whom I have begotten in my imprisonment, who formerly was useless to you, but now is useful both to you and to me. Useless to you? How so? Well, the idea here was not useless in the fact or, you know, in the sense that, that Onesimus was a sluggard or was, you know, a lazy slave. I'm sure Philemon would not have tolerated that. But in Christ Jesus, he became most useful because now he's a Christian brother. Now his attitudes are changing. Now his life is changing. And he has become more profitable to you, Philemon, to me, the Apostle Paul, but more importantly, to the kingdom of God. Onesimus was a slave to Philemon, but he had become a bondservant to Jesus Christ. He labored on the estate of his master, but he had become a co-laborer in the kingdom of Jesus Christ with the Apostle Paul. Going back to his master, he could be punished. He could even be killed. Or he could be set free by his master. But the reality was, in Jesus Christ, he was already set free. He was already set free from the prison of sin, already set free from the prison of fear, already set free from a life that was tearing him down and would, often, and would ultimately destroy him. So let me ask a question to you. What difference does Jesus make in a life? What difference has Jesus made in your life if you're a Christian? Think back on this for just a moment. Look back upon your life just briefly. Has Jesus really made a difference in who you are and how you think? In the affections of your heart, in your will, in the purpose of your life? Has Jesus really had an impact on you? What difference has Jesus made in your life? What difference did Jesus make in the life of Peter? What difference did Jesus make in the life of Saul of Tarsus? Turn back with me to Philippians chapter 3. Not Philemon, but Philippians. Philippians chapter 3. That means you're going to turn back um, and go a couple of books back. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, chapter 3. And I want you to look with me at verses 4 through 7. Here's the Apostle Paul. Oftentimes, wherever Paul would go preaching the gospel, people would demand that he produce his credentials. We want to know who you are. We want to know by what right and by what authority you have to say what you say and to do what you do. Well, here's the Apostle Paul speaking to the Philippian church in chapter 3, beginning in verse 4. And he's talking about these credentials uh, that he had. He says in verse 4, Although I myself might have confidence even in the flesh. Now understand where he's coming from. He's coming from as a Hebrew person. Not as a Christian, but as a Hebrew person. 
Although I myself might have confidence even in the flesh, if anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to the righteousness which is in the law, found blameless. An impeccable record. You couldn't get any better than Saul of Tarsus. And that's why at a young age he was picked by the Pharisees to become a candidate for the Sanhedrin. And he was in the processes of developing into that role when he met Jesus Christ on the road to Damascus. But what he's saying here is, when it comes to credentials, and when it comes to pedigree, and when it comes to having authority as a Hebrew person, you can't find anybody higher than me. But it doesn't stop there. Look at verse 7. Whatever things were gained to me, those things I've counted as loss for the sake of Jesus Christ. More than that, I count all things to be loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and counted them but rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. How did Jesus make a difference in Paul's life? How did Jesus affect his attitudes? How did Jesus affect his actions through those changed Attitudes. Well, what difference did Jesus make in the life of Onesimus? What difference did Jesus make in the life of a runaway slave? When the Apostle Paul said, I can't allow you to be my personal servant anymore, I need to send you back to your master, you need to go back and you need to face the consequences. Paul was in prison. Onesimus wasn't. Onesimus could have run. He ran away from the estate and found himself in Rome, 1,300 miles away. He could very well have run away from Paul and run away from Rome and go to some other place and hide himself out in another place, but he didn't. We don't find anywhere that he argued with Paul, begged Paul not to send him back. He agreed to go. Ask any true believer the difference that Jesus has made in his or her life. Observe a genuine Christian and see the difference that Jesus has made in that person's life. Jesus makes all the difference in a person's attitude and in a person's action, which leads me to lesson number three. Personal faith in Jesus Christ transforms attitudes. Personal faith in Jesus Christ transforms lives. Personal faith in Jesus Christ transforms relationships. Look at verses 5 and 6. Excuse me, verses 15 and 16. Philemon verses 15 and 16. Perhaps 
the Apostle Paul says. Perhaps he was for this season or for this reason separated from you for a while, that you would have him back forever, no longer as a slave, but more than a slave, a beloved brother, especially to me. But how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord? Relationships. Paul's appeal to Philemon was very simple. He was basically telling this master, this Christian leader of the church, based on the love and the forgiveness that Jesus brought into your life, listen to me carefully, based upon the love and forgiveness that Jesus has brought into your life, show that same love and forgiveness to your now-believing slave, Onesimus. Sounds like the golden rule, doesn't it? In Matthew chapter 7, verse 12, Jesus said, In everything, therefore, treat people the same way you want them to treat you, for this is the law and the prophets. He said in Luke chapter 6, 31, Treat others the same way you want them to treat you. And that was the appeal that he was making to Philemon. Treat Onesimus, your slave, legally your slave, but now your Christian brother. Treat him with the same love and compassion and forgiveness that God has extended to you. And there again, dear friends, that should be the attitude of every Christian. Amen? We should treat other people with the same love and compassion and forgiving spirit as God has extended to us. Because there are none of us perfect. I've checked. None of us are perfect. All of us have benefited from the grace and the mercy and the forgiveness of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we should seek to extend that same grace to others. But I want you to note something else here in this letter. I want you to note the balance. The balance between Paul's conviction regarding Onesimus and Paul's compassion toward his master, Philemon. Paul was convicted that Onesimus was a person of worth. Not just a slave, like millions of other slaves, but he was a person of worth, far greater than a slave on the ranch back in Colossae. He had become a Christian. He had become a child of God. He had become a brother in the Lord. But he also had become an individual who must return to his master and face the consequences of his wrongdoing. And he willingly did so. He went with Tychikos back to Colossae and back to his master, Philemon. But Paul was also compassionate toward 
Philemon and the dilemma that he now had to face as a slave master. Philemon was a Christian. Paul led him to faith in Jesus Christ. He was a child of God. He was also a brother in the Lord. But he was a man who now had to deal with a Christian slave who was returned to him. And he willingly did so. Scripture doesn't tell us the future of Philemon or of Onesimus. But we have a letter from Ignatius of Antioch written around 110 AD. And in that letter, Ignatius tells us that Onesimus became a pastor of a church in Ephesus. And eventually he was martyred there for his Christian faith and service. Philemon released his slave brother. And rather than running back to Rome trying to find Paul, Onesimus went to Ephesus. And I believe under the ministry of Timothy and then later on under the ministry of the Apostle John, he became a pastor of a local congregation where he died for his faith in Jesus Christ. I want you to look at verses 17 and 18 as we close. These are the final words of instruction of the Apostle Paul to Philemon. He writes, If then you regard me a partner, accept him, that is Onesimus, accept him as you would me. But if he has wronged you in any way or owes you anything, charge that to my account. Jesus transforms relationships. He, re, he, he, he transforms attitudes, which in turn transforms actions, which in turn transforms relationships. That's the transforming power of God's love in a Christian life. It is the Samaritan, if you will. It's the Samaritan who was despised by the Jews, but cared for the beaten and dying Jewish traveler on the wayside. It's the father who was taken advantage of and shamed by his younger son, but waited and watched patiently for his son to return home. It's Jesus who came to his friend that denied him three times, forgave him, and restored him to faith and to service. It's the apostle who asked for his then immature friend, who angered him by turning back on their first missionary journey, but now was asking that that John Mark would come to him and visit him in prison for a while as he awaited execution. 
Transformation. Transformation. The power of Jesus Christ in a person's life. It transforms our attitudes. We don't see ourselves or others like we used to, like the world does. We begin to see ourselves and others as God sees us and as God sees them. The power and the love of Jesus Christ transforms our lives. We don't live the old sinful life anymore. A life that's controlled by the desires of the eyes, the desires of the flesh, and our self-centered pride. We begin to live the Christ life through the power of the indwelling Holy Spirit. The love of Jesus Christ that transforms our relationships where we once built relationships on the conditional brotherly friendship that changes on a dime, we now begin to build relationships on the unconditional godly love that continues on in us despite our situations and our circumstances, our acceptance or our rejection, our help or our hurt. That's the transforming power of Jesus. And it's all right here in this very, very brief letter to a dear friend. I pray that we will learn these three big lessons, major lessons, from these little-known individuals in your New Testament. I'm going to ask that we prepare ourselves now to address the Lord's table and the Lord's Supper. If you have your, your cup with you, The Apostle Paul wrote to the church at Corinth, For I received from the Lord that which I have also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, in the night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Take the cup and open the top tab and there you will find the bread Father I thank you that Jesus was willing to sacrifice his body on a cross so that the perfect sacrifice for sin could be made And in that sacrifice, we could have forgiveness, acceptance, and be given eternal life in him. In his name I ask, amen. Take the bread, if you will, please. And carefully open the cup.
The Apostle Paul continues, in the same way, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Father, thank you. That your son was willing to shed his blood on that cross so that we would be cleansed of all sin. That he gave his life for our life. And now in him we have life. Life full and free. Life eternal in fellowship with you. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for going to that cross. Thank you for yielding to your Father's will. Thank you for shedding your blood so that we might have life in you. In your name I ask, amen. Scripture tells us that after the Lord's Supper in the upper room, Jesus and his disciples sang a song, and then they went out to the place of prayer. Let's stand together. David is going to lead us in a song together. Lord, said. Thank you for being here. You are dismissed. The Bible says, if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. If you've never trusted in Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, we invite you to call on him now and through a simple prayer of faith, give your life to him. If you're not attending a church that honors the Bible as the Word of God, we encourage you to locate and begin attending such a church in the area where you live. The message you have just heard was preached from the pulpit of First Baptist Church, Winton, California. For more information on the ministry of First Baptist Church, Winton, please visit our website at wintonchurch.org.